KCF Technologies presents Industrial Transformation, Stories of Failure and Success from the Front Lines of American Manufacturing. Welcome back to the Industrial Transformation Podcast. I am Jeremy Frank, and I am very pleased to be joined with a very special guest today, Mr. William Lavodi. Welcome, William. Thank you, Jeremy. Good to be here. Good to be here as well. I would safely say that William Lavodi is one of, if not the foremost pump systems expert, certainly that I've ever met. I can safely say that I've ever met and quite possibly the foremost expert on pump systems in the world. And we got to know each other through our mutual involvement in the Hydraulic Institute, which is the industrial organization representing the industrial pump and motor organizations, the manufacturers. He also has a very deep military background that we'll be talking about that forms the some of the essence of how he views the world and has worked in a series of organizations uh, serving some of the most challenging pump and other asset problems in industry. So with that, William, please just introduce yourself and can you tell us a little bit just if you could expound on what I just described, your personal background and what got you to this point? Well, thank you, Jeremy, and uh, thank you for having me again. Uh, just a little background on myself, and you mentioned my military experience, and I'd like to start off with that, if I may, because my military experience as a young Marine uh, formed my work ethic when I went into the private sector as an engineer, working in, again, the industrial sector. I was a member of Third Force Recon during the Vietnam War. I served two tours of duty in Vietnam with a Third Marine Force Recon. And with their ethics, and if any of you are familiar with Force Recon, that's wonderful, but most people aren't. But we have a reconnaissance creed that I live by. I could, if I may, I'd like to reference a few uh, excerpts from that creed to give you a point of reference as to how I executed my work as an engineer. And as Jeremy said, I worked, I was blessed to work for pump OEMs as well as motor and drive OEMs. So I had a very unique experience as an engineer after my military career. So with reference to Marine Recon, and specifically Force Recon, which is a unique segment of Marine Recon. Exceeding beyond the limitations set down by others shall be my goal. Sacrificing personal comforts and dedicating myself to the completion of the reconnaissance mission shall be my life. Physical fitness, mental attitude, and high ethics is the title of a Marine Recon. Conquering all obstacles, both large and small, I shall never quit. To surrender, to give up is to fail. When I'm troubleshooting a system, I don't fail. I complete it. To be a reconnaissance Marine is to surpass failure, to overcome, to adapt, and do whatever it takes to complete the mission. And I'll just hit one more segment. On the battlefield, as in all areas of life, I shall stand tall above the competition through professional pride, integrity, and 
that's what I wanted to get to, teamwork, I shall be the example for all Marines to emulate. There's more to the recon creed. I just wanted to hit those segments because they are key to how I perform my work, how I executed my work to my valued customers when I went into the industrial sector as an engineer. So can you tell me, so I, thank you for sharing that. And of, of course, the, the, the important thing to say is thank you for your service. I know you've heard that throughout your life, but I'll say it here. But also thank you for sharing your story with us because, you know, there, there are a lot of military professionals who go into the industrial world, as you know, Mm -hmm. And I think it's a really important dynamic because you bring that discipline. I mean, your the, the force recon experience is a very special one. And I, I, I do understand something about that because you've explained it to me and I've spoken with some others. But thank you for that. I'm, I'm curious to hear a bit about uh, a bit more. So, you know, so to give up is to fail and the focus on teamwork and being truly committed to that in the Marine Corps. How, how shared is that? Is that 100 percent shared with the the people you served with. And then when you went into the industrial world, can you tell us a bit about that transition and how that, how different it was or similar it was? That was a, I'll be, be blunt with you. That was a traumatic transition because I trusted my teammates. We were in six man teams. Now think about this. We went behind enemy lines <laughs> and there were no lines in Vietnam, but we were dead in the middle of the stuff. Let's put it that way. And there was only six of us. And our lives depended on our teammates. Now, let me emphasize, in initial recon training, the slackers, the non-hackers, the, non the people that couldn't work as a team, and so on and so on, they were weeded out within a week. So within a week, you had your, your people, now if they could finish the rest of the training, which there was a 75% failure rate, at the end of the training, you had a solid core and every one of those men would give their life for their teammates. Now that was a comforting thought. And, you know, I lived that. That was my, you know, two tours in Vietnam. We lived and died by trusting our teammates. Now you said, how did that transition when I went out to the real world? It wasn't pretty. It was traumatic because, and this is the brutal, honest truth, and I think everybody can attest to this, it's a pretty much a uh, pretty ruthless business out there in the industrial sector. People are scared of their jobs. They're looking out for the most part. There's always exceptions, but people tend to look out for themselves. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but that's, I was not accustomed to that. I was a young 18 year old kid when I went in the Marine Corps, came out as a 21 year old trained killer. I mean, so I didn't know much about the uh, industrial sector. I didn't know squat about the industrial sector. All I know is I had a team of men with me that would give their life for me. Now I'm thrust into this industrial sector and man, now it's literally every man for himself. So that was traumatic. And we use part of the recon creed, improvise, adapt and overcome. I had to adapt to that, but I had to do it without sacrificing my integrity and credibility, 
which we all take to our grave. Without integrity and credibility, folks, you have nothing. And I hold on to that with a death grip. And I would not sacrifice that. And that was a tough road to hoe, if that answers your question, Jeremy. It definitely does. Uh I, uh, I mean, I can only imagine that transition. Uh, I've talked to others who have made a transition from the military, but you're, you know, that two tours in Vietnam during that time at that age is a, that's a, a that's a deep experience. So that that tra I'm curious about something tied into that transition. That so in, in your time in in Vietnam, your interface and reliance on machinery. So you're in your team of, of six comrades, and then. In addition to that, you're relying on equipment, machinery, and ultimately you you go into industry and you're working on the reliability of this machinery. What were your experiences in Vietnam with in, in specifically in regard to the equipment and machinery that you depended on? Okay, depending on the mission, and we don't discuss our missions, we take that to our grave, but just in general, we chose our weapons, our equipment, based on the mission. There were certain missions where we simply went out to determine the size of the enemy force, or we might have been sent out to uh, take out a individual or individuals, or there's you know maybe blow up something or different different agendas. So that would dictate what equipment we took with us, but. And here's a good point. I think I know where you're going with this. With our equipment, obviously, we checked and triple checked our equipment before we left. We had redundancy. Every man was a trained sniper. Every man on that team was trained, was cross-trained to every facet of our skill sets. Every man. If one man went down and I am proud to say this, I never lost a man in two tours of duty. The second tour, I was a team leader. First tour, I was part of the team. We never lost a man, and I am extremely proud of that. But it was due to preparation, attention to detail. We had a checklist we followed. And again, I bring that to the industrial sector. It's my business practice. And we followed that checklist, that process to the letter. Now, once we went out into the field, it was improvise, adapt, and overcome, because I can assure you, not one of our missions went off without a hitch. There were always variables. The worst variable was our mission being compromised. That was the scare that was scary stuff. And that's where you said thinking on your feet. By God, you might you're thinking on your feet while you're running and calling in artillery fire to cover your uh, cover you to get to your extraction point. But again, it's all about preparation, attention to detail, making sure your equipment was in perfect working order, that there were no issues before you left that fire base or the rear area. Got it. So so you have this, you've learned these experiences deeply, preparation, attention to detail, never, uh, never giving up until the project is finished. You're in your early 20s, you, you enter the industrial world, and now there's a lot to cover here in the very short time that we have, but you've, you've then now, from then till now, spent four or five decades applying that approach in the industrial world to great success and amassed a tremendous amount of knowledge. Can you just walk me through some of the highlights, you know, early experiences, negative or positive, 
what you where you worked, what you worked on, and and what set you on this path to becoming a a, a pump optimization expert. Oh, okay. Well, the way I got into the pump optimization aspect was I worked with some very, 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 in my early days, smart pump engineers. These were design engineers. Hmm. And I was blessed, again, I was very blessed to be exposed to these people. And also, I was a sponge, too. I, when I left the Marine Corps, I was an E5. I was a, a hard-nosed E5 sergeant enforce recon nobody messed with us we were mean nasty people i had to swallow my ego and shut up and listen to these senior engineers and one of them told me he says you want to learn this i said yes sir he says shut your blankety blank mouth and i'll teach you and you know what i wanted to punch him in the face but discretion's a better part of valor i shut my mouth and i listened so they trained me on how to troubleshoot the pump. And he says, you think you got, you think we got this pump fixed? I said, yes, sir. He says, follow it out to the field. Okay, went out to the field and we installed it. And son of a gun, it wouldn't work right. Hmm. Call him, he says, what do you think's wrong? I said, I know we got the pump right. And he says, you probably did. He says, in fact, I know you did because I checked it with you. What do you think's happening? He says, Go out and check the system. Duh. That's when I got an education on system interaction and how to troubleshoot it. And that was an eye opener. And I became intrigued with that approach. So where did I implement this first? On the pipelines. And a lot of them was uh, natural gas pipelines, LNG, oil pipelines where you have the multiple pumps in the system and you have the system pulsation and, uh, and where their common practice with people specifying pumps is nobody wants to undersize a pump, so what do they do? They oversize it. And everybody's trying to cover, remember what I said about covering your back? I didn't have to worry about that in the Marine Corps, but in the real world, you better cover your back. So everybody's adding a fudge factor when they size that pump. So then what do you have? You have a grossly oversized pump in a pumping system. Jeremy, I made my career and I could do a second career just fixing the boogered up pump systems out there. 99% of them, and this is no exaggeration, are oversized to the system because of that covering their backsides because the worst thing you could do is undersize. If it's undersized, you're screwed. You got to replace the pump. But the job's not getting done, it, right? Sir? Because then the oil or gas is not getting where it needs to be or you're not or, pumping enough liquid. So it's whatever you're transmitting. Yes. So if it's if it's oversized, you know, you got things you could do, as you well know. That was a big eye opener for me. Then I started thinking, OK, now, mind you, this is back in the 80s and early 90s. Variable frequency drives were not the flavor of the day. They were using eddy current drives and bypass and other methodologies to control the speed of the pump to alter the head and flow. I, that's where I learned about system interaction and corrective measures, how to troubleshoot it, how to plot a pump and system curve, 
in the field. And that has served me well. And I've performed those tasks throughout all industries, beginning with oil and gas. Then I transitioned to water, wastewater, automotive industry, steel industry, pulp and paper. I've worked in pulp and paper for years troubleshooting their systems. I mean, I can go across all the industrial sectors and cite example after example of oversized pumping systems where I had to go in there and troubleshoot it. Now you asked, where did the problems lie? Where were my roadblocks? The roadblocks, Jeremy, were developing teamwork because to effectively perform a system optimization study is working as a team. And I don't mean just my coworkers. When you are doing a system optimization study at that all important end user is working with their people, working with the respective OEMs of the equipment. That would be the pump OEM, the motor and drive OEM. It could be the valve OEMs. But you have to work as a team in conjunction with key people at the end user. You need a broad uh, spectrum of teammates to cover all the aspects of that system to effectively determine root cause and then effectively implement the corrective measures to optimize that system to get that end user the all-important reliability and ultimately sustainable growth to where they remain profitable year over year. And go ahead. So I'm just, I'm curious if you can take us at a high level. So you've, you've done this for decades, right? You've been in mm -hmm. essentially all the critical industries. You We've worked together a, a good bit. I know these things, oh, but yes. to share with the audience, how bad is it? Right. So so you've talked about oversized pumps as a chronic issue. And even before we get to that as a chronic issue, just how how bad is the critical infrastructure that you've seen in the 80s, in the 90s, in 2000s, 2010s? And now is it is it getting better? Is the problem pervasive and chronic, as you described? And how bad is it out there? From your I'll point? keep it real simple. It's just as pervasive and chronic as it was back in the 80s. And here is why, and I'm sure the folks that are going to see this recording are saying, where is this guy coming from? Well, it's a real simple answer and it's indisputable. There are no pump system standards. There's pump standards, there's motor standards, there's drive standards, but there's no system standard. And this is the core issue. Anybody, Jeremy, you, me, Anybody on your, your receptionist could go out and design a pump system and nobody could say you did it wrong because there's no standard to reference it to. So, and I'm not criticizing any profession, but let me reference the engineering firms. You go to, you know, the end, the end user, and this is part of the issue. The end user will call up an engineering firm and say, hey, I'll go, I'll use power industry. We want to build a combined cycle plant to produce 800 megawatts of power, uh, natural gas. And okay, the engineering firm, and I'm oversimplifying here in the interest of time, the engineering firm will produce a, uh, a specification. Okay, 
the, the end user will say, okay, how much? All right, sign off it and away they go. There was no general scope document. The end user didn't provide any clear direction to that engineering firm, which is the general scope document, which is part of the problem here, because there's no system standard. It requires specific information from the end user in the form of a general scope document, which by the way, we could do a, another podcast on if you so desire for the uh, your client base. But so the engineering firm goes ahead and designs this power plant to the best of their ability. Now, I've experienced this as a former end user, as a principal engineer from one of the largest power utilities in North America. I, could, I experienced this firsthand. It was a bloody disaster when we started commissioning. We had a 75% failure rate on the boiler feed pumps, which are the most critical pumps and the highest energy pumps in the plant. 75% failure rate on startup. Why? There was no general scope document, owner's acceptance criteria for them to follow on how they commissioned, sized, and uh, controlled the pumps. And that continues to this day. So I'm curious because I, I make a statement that I've observed, but just to, if, if you'd validate this or not, I'm curious. So from the 80s, the 90s, when you, you know, in the 70s into the 80s, when you first experienced this reality, you're coming in with, you know, this impactful experience from the Marine Corps and applying your vigor and, and approach, your methodology to these problems. You say, oh, my God, this is what's actually happening in the industrial world. I've got something to work on for my entire career. I don't know if you thought that far ahead, but you did. No, not that far at that time. <laughs> Go ahead. And then, so, you know, you say that here we are 40, 50 years later, it hasn't really improved. Something I've observed, what I want to ask if, if you validate this is, in some ways, I think it's maybe gotten worse. And the reason for that is that there's been a lot of consolidation in the industry. And so the experts are actually further apart now than they were when you started this. Is that true? Is that you know, partially Jeremy, true? Or? That is a very good point. I think you have, uh, I never thought of it in that perspective. In reality, yes, they are further apart. Now it, it runs, you know, we have more sophisticated computer systems and we have technology yes. and we generally look at, you know, cars are improving. They don't rust anymore. They last longer. So there are general technology improvements, but in this dynamic, I think maybe that's part of why there's this pervasive blind spot that most people yes. just aren't aware of. Even, even those yeah. that are in the end user, you know, designing a power right. plant, designing a pulp yeah. and paper mill. That is profound. And you know what, to add to that, what's really fascinating, as you mentioned with technology, technology is advanced. Holy cow, look at your company with that incredible wireless condition monitoring. You could monitor, back in the day when I was with the power utility, all of our, we had to select the critical equipment to monitor because we had to hardwire everything mm. and that's expensive isn't it so we had to select which equipment we monitored with our hardwiring now heck i'm an exaggerate you could be on the bloody moon and monitor your your equipment with your technology so and then with the advancement of variable frequency drives and these uh, state and the high efficiency motors and all the technology that's out there for system modeling and design, there is no excuse for us to have inefficient, unreliable, and efficiency and reliability folks go hand in hand. 
So I say inefficient and unreliable equipment. There's absolutely no excuse for it. But what is driving it is the, and I'm not going to be critical of this, but it's an issue. It's the end user's lack of not knowing, uh, a lack of awareness of understanding of the importance of preparing and generating a general scope document for these projects, whether it's an entirely new plant or an expansion or simply a pump, motor, fan, blower replacement. You need, the end user needs to generate that general scope document. And Jeremy, I believe your people are being trained to support your important, your valued customers in that aspect and generating that general scope document. That is what needs to be prepared to go to that engineering firm to give them direction. You're not telling them how to design it. You're saying, this is what I expect from you, Mr. Engineering Firm. We want the most efficient and reliable system available today using current technology. And this is our criteria. Now, go ahead and design it. Yes. So it's really, I mean, and that really is, I mean, you. my next question is, how do we get from here to where we want to be and address these blind spots now that we do have the technology? But I think you've really, you've really summed it up. It's a matter of, of encompassing the entire system, not simply the most fundamental basic technical requirement of moving a certain gallons per minute to a certain pressure or a certain volume of air. You have, yes, to, you have to account for the, all the implications that cohesively right. affect the system. Interesting. It's, first of all, I keep going back to the end user because I love the end user. I, I want to deal with the end user, and I want to deal with their upper-level people, their decision makers. While I certainly work hand-in-hand in, hand in my career, as you mentioned, with the maintenance people, heck, I, I'll interview the guy sweeping the floor because you know what? He's around all that equipment every day. He says, yeah, I see that pump leaking all the time. Or, man, it was shaking the other day. I thought it was going to fall off the base plate. They give me a lot of information. And you know what? They respected me for that. But where I'm going here, education and awareness. Remember, Jeremy, with our, you're on the board of directors of Pump Systems Matter, as was I. Remember one of our key parts of the mission statement? education and awareness. We need to educate, make the end user aware, hey, there's no system standard, but Mr. Customer, we can help you overcome that by assisting you in developing that general scope document. Here's why it's important to you. Sustainability, reliability, efficiency, it'll reduce your, your operating cost reduce your downtime, increase productivity, and so on and so on. I can go on and on about that. So as you, so where I would start is education and awareness to the end user and then go from there with Got it. the uh, system design by, again, using state-of-the-art system modeling tools. And that's where these Flow modeling tools and such are so critical. And there's several major companies out there that are very close to the Hydraulic Institute. And where I use those, and I have both versions from both of the companies, very respectable companies, I use those for system design 
But when it comes to troubleshooting, not so much because the system, you have to walk down the system and look at all that piping. You have to crawl through all those pipe chases. You have to monitor and track every piece of that piping. If you make a mistake and then try to model it with that, you're going to be screwed up. It doesn't work. So it requires a lot of hands-on walking down that system. Let me emphasize it again, as a team working together to determine here's what I got and then determine what the root cause is and work as a team to determine the effect, most cost-effective corrective action to be taken to achieve the level of reliability and efficiency that one would expect for that type of a system. Sure. So, I mean, it makes so much sense. I, it's You and I both know saying that and doing that are two very different things because of the complexity and the legacy infrastructure, but that's our your life's work, a big part of my life's work thus far. I, I, I want to ask you, if, if you take all that together, right? So everything we've talked about in your life experiences from the Marine Corps and the approach that you bring, and then everything you've seen and learned, but take now and look forward. If there's just one big problem, what's the one, the biggest problem that you wish that you could just snap your fingers and solve, or at least begin solving right now that causes a big issue? And I'm going to speak, I'm going to have to go with, at the end user level, that they should develop a close, and I'm not painting a broad brush, I'm sure there's exceptions, but as a whole, develop that atmosphere of teamwork. Mm -hmm. Because in my experience, because if I can't get that end user, their people working as a team, here's a technical term, I'm screwed. (laughs) It ain't going anywhere. I might as well walk away. If they will work as a team, I'm done. I can't help you, Mr. Customer, because this requires a team. So I would, my dream would get, would be to get that end user working as a team and welcoming with open arms that third party that, and I'm going to use KCF technology because you don't have a dog in the fight. You're not selling equipment. You're selling a service. One of the biggest issues at the end user is they don't trust OEMs. And again, I'm painting a a broad picture, but OEMs have an agenda. They sell hardware, but a independent, I'll call you guys KCF, an independent third party, you don't have a dog in the fight. They could easily embrace you folks because You're not in there to sell them equipment. You're in there to assist them with your advanced technology to identify where the problems lie, doing the root cause analysis, optimizing the system, and implementing corrective measures, and then using your advanced technology, here's the big one, Jeremy, to validate the success of your solution. That's my dream. Yeah, I love it. And I, I mean, I love, I, I, I appreciate you sharing that. I also appreciate and, and fully, you know, understand the perspective that it ties directly back to the Force Recon Creed with teamwork as a key tenant. And yeah, I could also tell you, I think you know this from the conversations we've had, but the, real, the reality that, that we see most often in the industrial world is not that. And, and particularly that there are, most of these organizations are so large that there are just um, there are miscommunication there are communication gaps between the functional areas maintenance 
engineering, design, yes. reliability, even yes. you know, these groups just don't communicate cohesively. And it's, it's like yes. you said, it's no one's fault. A lot of it is just the competitiveness of the global manufacturing environment, from my point of view. It's just companies are forced to do more with less and communication yes. is one of the things that becomes strained. So what I want to ask you that is next. So we see what's happening now. And obviously technology is the big potential enabler. And people talk so much about industry 4.0 and the industrial internet of things, technology broadly. Uh, it does provide a genuine game changer. From what you've seen for the last 50 or so years, 40 years, 50 years, what do you think it's going to be like if you take us forward, say, 10 years or whatever the whatever the future state is, how far off? Do you think it's going to get better or do you think it's going to stay the same or potentially will these gaps even widen and become more challenged in, in the industrial landscape? Boy, that is a good question. And I like to be think that the glass is half full, but... I have to be honest with you and say it's going to be more challenging mm. because these companies are so, so, so profit driven. They are for profit companies. And I still have a very, very close relationship in the power industry as well as other industrial sectors. And when I speak to my acquaintances there, they said, Bill, you ought to be glad you got out when you did because the pressure is even worse. Mm. And my old co-workers, most of them are, you know, approaching retirement age. Some have held on a little longer. They can't wait to get out of it because the pressure is so bad. And mm. God bless them. Some of them died at their desks from the stress. It's really sad. So I see the gap getting worse. Yeah. The pressure to perform using their current technology. Here's a common phrase that was used in my, at my company and literally across the industrial sector as a whole. It was called, and I even wrote an article on it for a magazine, the paralyzing fear of change. And that is a quote, that's a Lavoti quote. I've, I've written several articles on it. And I had, you wouldn't believe the response I got. They said, spot on, right on, the paralyzing fear of change. Now, what does that mean? Quite simply, you know what? I'm better to stick with the status quo than to change something because, here it is, if I make that change and something happens, I'll get fired. The common phrase at my company, at the, at the power company, if equipment fails, somebody's got to bleed. That's a quote. Somebody's got to go down. I had people fight me. Now think about this. I was trying to get them away from 75-year-old technology, a gear coupling, antique. Now they're bulletproof as long as you maintain them, but there's a massive residual imbalance. They require a lot of maintenance. I was trying to convert them over to a state-of-the-art, precision-balanced, maintenance-free shimpack coupling. No-brainer. Sized it up. All you had to do was put it on. They wouldn't do it. Change. Paralyzing fear of change. They left that coupling set by that pump until I left the company. Wow. They refused to put it on. And broadly, I mean, the answer, your answer to that question is um, 
I hope that the answer is different, but I, you and I both know that it's, it's a very realistic outlook, especially when you look at the, these colleagues of yours who are retiring for their own personal well-being. They're yes. also the ones who hold the greatest knowledge. And so there, this, this gap, this knowledge gap that's looming is a very weird. It's one of the things that motivates us in our work the most is trying to no one's going to completely solve that knowledge gap, but we can no. remediate it as well as we can with technology. It should be very scary to people. I think the you know the potential I, consequences of that are something that I think in the government and just in society are not understood at the level that they should be. And it's going to be it won't be it'll be it'll be consequences when the problems rear their heads. Yeah, and I, and one of the things that I hope that is gleaned from this podcast is, folks, wake up, take this to heart. This is reality. You've got to step up to the plate. If the end users watching this, take responsibility for your systems, for your new systems, for your new installations, for a new construction. Prepare that general scope document. Use third parties such as KCF technology. Use them. Here's another phrase that I, I enjoy a trusted advisor. When I was at the power company over all the rotating equipment, you know what? I'll be the first to tell you, I don't know everything, but you know what? I had my select vendors that I trusted. I had select individuals outside of my company that I trusted. They were my trusted advisors, and I would go to them for help. Nobody knows everything. But if you go to a third party that has deep resources, and again, I have to reference KCF with your vast resources, wow, there's a trusted advisor and you could almost single source going there. I mean, that's huge. I wish I had resources like KCF back when I was in the, as an end user. Man, I was out there winging it. I mean, I turned gray in that job. <laughs> from the stress. Hey, I mean, yeah. it was power generation. When a power plant went down, guess what? Back in the day, it could cost $5,000 a megawatt. It was huge, huge impact. And it's, we're, by the way, we're getting towards that again with the, power, the weak power grid yeah. and the demand for power. So I hope that answers your question. It absolutely does. And I, I, I we could talk about these things uh, all afternoon, and I would really oh, yeah. enjoy it because I do just have one last question to wrap it up. Mm -hmm. And it, it's sort—it's of, really just a personal question, you know. Those, those, your outlook on how things are going, and I really do hope you're wrong, but I believe that you very well may be right about you know where we're going to be in the near future industrially. But the question about you, just sort of personally, and how your your outlook, especially you know coming from your Marine Corps experiences and your your background, especially in in uh, force recon. I'd like to just hear you articulate what it is that that you hold to be true, a, a truth that you hold about the world and your approach that most people would disagree with you about. Most people see differently than you. What is that for you? Boy, that's a good, that's a tough one. That and maybe this is a little bit jaded, I am very selective about who I bring into my fold. I'm, I'm going to reference a movie. What was it? The 
Falkers. Remember that movie? Sure. Where he has his his bubble, his his circle of trust. I'm sorry. Circle of trust. Circle of trust. And I did this out of survival when I got out of the Marine Corps because I was in shock. I was I was not mentally prepared to go into the real world when I got out of the Marine Corps for numerous reasons. But so I learned to develop my circle of trust. I am very leery because I was said I walked into some ambushes. I'm going to use my military training when I went out to the industrial sector and I developed I said, okay, I don't have a team around me. I better develop my circle of trust. So I started formulating that and I would attempt to do that when I went to each and every customer. I would ask specific questions. I call it asking the right questions to see if I can identify someone at that client, at that end user, that I could bring into my circle of trust so that I could survive this uh, project. If the, does that answer your question? Absolutely. I, Again, it ties back to teamwork. Essentially, it, triage teamwork is what I might call that. You're forcing that's a good, it. Yes. But but not waiting for the for the teamwork to take shape because it may not. I mean, it didn't in your experiences. So you have to force it. You, you had to. I had to force it, and uh, it was always a blessing. If I walked into a plant and there were a couple of uh, retired Marines on staff, because then they, they generally, when they found out who I was, they wanted to come down to meet me. Interesting. And so, probably presumably had a, a shared ethos that you could then align with that at least exactly. they're going to be focused on getting the problem solved. And Yeah. I, I, I just absolutely enjoyed this conversation. And I, uh, as did I. Again, we, we could talk all day, but we, um, I would just say thank you again. For your, for your service, but especially for sharing the experiences that you have and what you've brought to the industrial world, what you've brought to me kind of personally through my learnings. I've learned so much from you personally, as has our organization. So I just want to thank you for all those things and also for sharing your story here with us um, on the Industrial Transformation Podcast. Well, it's been a real privilege. And Jeremy, it's a pleasure working with you and your team. And I thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. Once again, I'm Jeremy Frank. This has been William Lavodi, and this is the Industrial Transformation Podcast.